The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. For coming out, it's nice to see you tonight. Tonight is the second part of the talk that I gave last week where I talked about how we get into conflict, the ways that the Buddha taught that we create conflict for ourselves. And tonight, drum roll is the way out. This is uh, part of a poem by Galway Cannell. It's entitled St. Francis and the Sow. The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. Or everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. To put a hand on its brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch. It is lovely until again it flowers from within of self-blessing. So as I said last week, I talked about how we get into conflict. And the Buddha taught us that what he called the three characteristics, impermanence, suffering, and egolessness, or anicca, dukkha, and anatta, are the three characteristics really of everything. And that those characteristics, because we don't deeply understand them, get us into trouble time and time again because we believe that some way, some person, some relationship, something we like, some job we have, some place we live, some way that someone is, should be or ought to be or surely it will be permanent. It won't change. And those beliefs are often very subtle. We don't even realize we have them until one day that person or that thing, especially that person, turns out to be different than we expected them to be. And then we suffer as a result because we were holding on, grasping to the way it should or was. And when it changes, we're surprised, we're hurt, we don't like it, and we suffer. And then we make it to be about me. Whatever that change was, surely it was about me. And that gets us into trouble again and again and again. And although it seems very self-evident that nothing is impermanent and intellectually we can understand 
that holding on to something as impermanent would create suffering because everything changes. And we know that intellectually. Deep in the way we relate to one another, we don't really get it. Or more accurately, we believe it's going to be different this time. We believe that surely it won't apply to these circumstances and that belief is mostly unconscious. We don't recognize that we are thinking that way. And tonight I want to discuss the Buddha's teachings about how developing compassion for others and for ourselves is one path, not the only path, but one path through conflict and a very important path in my own experience. For my 40th birthday, 30 years ago, I went with nine other middle-aged white guys, none of whom I knew, on a vision quest in the Adirondack Mountains of New York. I had never heard of the three characteristics. I had read a few books about Buddhism. I was into yoga by then pretty deeply and into meditation and into uh, things like vision quest. thought it was a cool idea. And this was before the men's movement. This was before a lot of things that we now take for granted. And I ended up deep in the Adirondack wilderness with these nine other men. As I look back on that time, the gap between who I was then and how I was being at the time and what I thought was permanent and what caused me suffering and who I thought I was and how it was about me, the gap is so huge that this particular story is a bit embarrassing. But the good thing about it is that I've come a long way in almost half my lifetime. It's taken half my lifetime or more to come this way. So I can definitely encourage you that given the deep hole that I had dug for myself at that time, and given that I'm sitting here now with you, no sweat, you'll make it. You can relax, just keep practicing. So we spent the first few days after going through the craziness of LaGuardia Airport in New York, in uh, Queens, outside, well, in New York City, actually, uh, sort of downshifting into the wilderness. And our guide had built a medicine wheel. Perhaps you've experienced one or seen one in your travels. And taught us how we should look within that the medicine wheel was how the universe reflected back to us our own internal state. Excuse me. And that learning about ourselves through looking within was a path to greater clarity. And I knew that. So I heard those words with a very 
strong intellectual sort of smug awareness. Hmm. I think you could take away the smug. I mean, sort of. Very smug awareness. And he talked about how we would uh, go out for two days, 48 hours, alone. And we should stay away. We should stay aware that maybe some animal familiar would come to teach us. And I was certain that an eagle was going to fly and <laughs> give me the teachings, the great secret teachings that would just make everything turn out in exactly the way I was unknowingly attached to it turning out. Because it, after all, it was about me. And the night before we went off, we had a sweat lodge that we built out in the wilderness. And uh, that purification ritual is always intense. And the icy Adirondack stream in late October, after all the leaves were off the trees coming from South Carolina, was particularly cold. But it didn't wash away a bit of my unconscious arrogance. And he said that for our vision quest, we could choose the deep woods, the stream uh, in the forest, or we could choose a ledge. No choice for me. It was going to be the ledge, because where else would an eagle fly, after all? (laughs) And we could take some food, a little bit of food, or we could take just water. And that was no choice either. Jug of water for me, that was it. So after our guide left me, standing out on this rocky promontory in the Adirondacks with an extraordinary view across the wilderness, I built myself a circle of rocks, and that's where I was going to stay for 48 hours and await my vision, my great vision from an eagle. And I put my sleeping bag and my water jug in the circle of rocks and I followed the instructions to the max. I had no reading materials, no journaling materials, nothing. Nothing to distract me except, of course, my mind, which was more than enough. And he had suggested that we come up with a question for our quest. And this is the most embarrassing part as I look back on it. But I have some developed some self-compassion for that arrogant, fear-driven male that I was at that time. And I was at the time I had started the first yoga teaching in South Carolina. And that was a very popular thing for a lawyer to do, after all, especially in South Carolina. And and, uh, my wife and I had even started a small spiritual center, kind of modeled on Esalen, called Chrysalis. And we had teachers come in from all over and taught yoga and meditation and all sorts of things like that. And so my question was, where is my power And how can I share it with my people? And 
as I said 30 years ago, I didn't hear the self-absorption that was in that question. And of course, I was driven by my own internal conflict. And that expressed itself in my relationships with others. And the idea of compassion or self-compassion was one that I didn't carry. I didn't even have the distinction. Of course, I knew the word compassion, and I believed that I understood what it meant. But my understanding was completely intellectual. And I certainly wasn't capable of bringing that compassion to myself. And consequently, I couldn't bring it to anyone else. Sound familiar to anyone? And so the natural question is, what blocks us from that expression of compassion for ourselves and others? Our dear teacher Gil Fronsdale, in his wonderful little book, A Monastery Within, wrote, if you want to discover what you don't yet know about yourself, investigate why you say what you say. So if you want to discover what you're unconscious of, what you don't know about yourself, investigate why you say what you say. So why would I have such a self-absorbed and arrogant question is where is my power and how can I share it with my people? A good place to investigate what I didn't know about myself at that time. I saw an article recently in the New York York Times entitled Ancient Bones Tell a Story of Compassion. Archaeologists had found a profoundly ill young man who lived 4,000 years ago in an area which is now North Vietnam. And he was buried in the fetal position and they could tell from that position and hit the skeleton that he had a spinal injury and had little use of his hands or feet. And the people had no metal. They were hunter-gatherers. And yet, they clearly carried him and cared for him to feed him as they moved around hunting and gathering because he lived for at least 10 years. So that aspect of compassion is very deep within our genetic makeup. And when you think about it, it makes sense because in a small band of people, we were very, very interdependent. We needed each other. So the compassion for one another and the connection for one another was deep. In our, it was necessary for survival, as I said last week. But the idea that it would extend to someone who was com- not only completely useless for others' survival, but was a drag on others' survival, is quite astounding to learn. And that archaeologists have discovered similar skeletons that tell the same story 
some going all the way back 45,000 years to Neanderthals. So if altruism or compassion is such an ancient inherited trait, why is it so hard for us to extend it to ourselves and then to others? Especially when we're caught in internal or external conflict. Why is it so hard for us? The Buddha gave us a very straightforward answer. Our sense of a separate individual self, as I talked about last week, that is generated out of our views and concepts, not reality, limits us and constrains us from experiencing the full boundless sense of loving kindness or metta, compassion or karuna. Those three characteristics trap us. So, just like my immature, self-absorbed question, where is my power and how can I share it with my people? We spend most of our time lost in self-absorbed concerns, asking ourselves variations of the question, how am I doing? (laughs) What's going on with me right now? Why are they acting this way towards me? How am I going to handle my to-do list? Why did I get myself in this situation? How am I going to have them do what I need them to do to make me happy? All variations of the question, how am I doing? How much time today, for example, did you spend worrying about the global economy, the wars, climate change, as compared with being absorbed in your own self-concerns. Of course, many of us follow the news and it's pretty grim right now, but when we're ruminating, are we ruminating about the impact of climate change on us? Are we ruminating about our neighbor whom we don't like? or our boss, or the people we work with, or someone in our family from whom we feel separated. Is that where our minds mostly go? Certainly true for me. So the mechanics of this underlying cause of our suffering are complex because we're continually regenerating the sense of I, or Daniel, That's our fundamental human activity. We're driven by desire to try to shape life the way I want it to be and the way I want you to be in relationship with me or aversion to push away the things that make me uncomfortable or the way you act that makes me uncomfortable. I want to shape you in the way that I need you to be to make me feel comfortable. Or delusion, when I just kind of zone out and am unconscious about the fundamental strategies that we learn that we know don't work, but we do them anyway. As I said last night, like rats going down the maze, going for cheese, going down tunnels 
where there is no cheese, over and over again. And we know there's no cheese there, but we go down that path anyway. We say that to our sister or brother, and we know it will make them upset, but we say it anyway. We are interesting, we human beings. So, that keeps us locked in conflict, internally and externally. And when you do look at the global conflicts that are raging now, you can easily trace the source of each one to exactly those three characteristics. I have the right religion. You have the wrong religion. I'm entitled to this territory. You are not entitled to this territory. I have the right caste or tribe or skin color or gender or gender preference or any other characteristic you can think of and you have the wrong one. I'm in the right political party. I have the right views. You're in the wrong political party, etc. This quote is attributed to the Buddha but not... Uh, verified for certain that he said it. The thought becomes an intention. The intention manifests as an action. Action develops into a habit. Habit hardens into character. Therefore, watch closely the thought that it comes from love. So the thought becomes an intention. The intention manifests as action. The action develops into a habit. Habit hardens into character. Therefore, watch closely the thought, the origination, that it comes from love. In 1982, sometime after my vision quest, Uh, my wife and I took a tour of Japan with one of my early spiritual teachers. She was actually from out here in Northern California. And I bought a calligraphy in one of the temples in Japan that has hung in either my office or my home since then. And it reads very similarly to the quote that I just read. The heart moves, and the movement begets life's patterns. Of these patterns, character is made. Character is fate. For the first ten years or so that I had that quote, I thought I understood what it meant. The next ten years or so, fifteen years, I would read it and say, it doesn't make any sense at all. I just don't believe it. It's wrong. And maybe in the last few years, I've slowly come to understand the truth of how we create our lives, the karma of our suffering, and especially the conflict that besets us. We think certain ways. We believe certain ways. We're taught to believe and think certain ways. We repeat that pattern of thinking over and over again. It hardens into the way we act, the way we perceive others. It makes our character, and our character determines 
the course of our lives. And those thoughts become mental proliferation. Have you noticed how you have certain thought patterns, certain getting up in the morning thought patterns, certain going to bed at night, certain looking in the refrigerator thought patterns, certain going to work or coming home from work thought patterns, certain thought patterns about your family, aspects of your life, the place you live, neighbors. And those patterns proliferate. And when we just don't pay enough mindfulness and attention, we'll find ourselves lost in a pattern of thinking that goes right down a certain tunnel. And all of a sudden, if we bring a little mindfulness to it, we will wake up and go, oh, this is a familiar thought pattern. If we have no mindfulness, the thought pattern goes and we find ourselves with our hands in the refrigerator, grabbing the pie and starting to eat the whole thing or whatever it is that we do that we don't want to do and we know if we do it, we will suffer, but we do it anyway. So, for example, watch your mind as I say, food, environmentally sustainable, healthy food, Environmentally sustainable, healthy food. Vegan food. Junk food. McDonald's hamburgers. Notice that you have a particular reactivity to each one of those food descriptions. It's automatic. We think that we think but we don't. As the Buddha taught over and over, our thoughts arise from conditions. So we're here together, that's one from condition, and I say a particular word, and that automatically causes certain thought patterns to arise. That's the habituating patterns that determine our character that determines our fate. And particularly when we add something that we care about, conflict and problems arise. So, for example, when I say, your body, your partner, or husband, or wife, or lack thereof, your parents, your work, your view of yourself. Notice the automatic thought patterns that arise. But because our thoughts and our thought patterns are determined 
by habit that we've created over the years of our life and because that habit and those thought patterns arise, arose originally from the causes and conditions of our lives as young, unconscious little children raised in a certain environment, raised with certain causes and conditions, with certain perspectives, educated in a certain way, those patterns become habitual. And we believe, we think that we're autonomous thinking beings, but we're just robotically responding to stimuli thinking. And we call that collection of thought pattern and that collection of proliferating responses automatically, I call that collection Daniel. But it's a totally constructed from causes and conditions view of self. And it separates me from you and the people I love when I'm caught in that proliferating character-driven, habitually-driven patterns and collection of thoughts that I describe as Daniel. There was a New York Times study of uh, last year, as a matter of fact. The article reported, the New York Times didn't study, 39 people. And 20 of them took an eight-week course in meditation and were required to practice at home using guided meditations. 19 were told they were being placed on a waiting list. And after the eight-week period of instruction, the participants all returned to a lab for an experiment that purported to be about memory, attention, and related cognitive abilities. But the actual test was whether the meditators would exhibit greater compassion in the face of suffering. It was one of these tests where you didn't know the actual test that was arising. And the actual test that they were given, they walked into a door, they were told that they were going to have their cognitive and memory abilities abilities tested, and they walked into a waiting room, and there were three chairs, and there were two people sitting in two of the chairs. And so, obviously, they sat in the third chair. And then the door opens, and a fourth person, who was also part of the test, as were the two people in the other chairs, a fourth person comes in with a boot on his or her foot and crutches. And there's no chair. And the person audibly sighs, and the two people who are there in the beginning and were part of the test don't get up. And this is called the bystander effect. When there's an accident or something happens and bystanders don't show any interest or compassion, it's been proven over and over that it has an impact. The extraordinary news, which tells a lot about us human beings, is that of the people who did not take the meditation course, only 16% got up to give their chair 
to the person on crutches. 16%. No wonder we're in the mess we're in. The meditators were significantly better, but nothing to crow about. But it was only eight weeks. 50% as opposed to 16% got up and gave their chair in spite of the bystander effect. So for an eight-week course, it's actually pretty astounding results. So back to compassion on the Adirondack Ridge with... uh, 40-year-old Daniel. The first day passed pretty uneventfully, and I kept my eyes on the sky, and I walked around my little circle of rocks with my mala beads, chanting, where's my power, and how can I share it with my people? And I vowed to stay awake through the night, because after all, certainly an eagle would soar at dawn. And I was going to be awake. And all through the night, I walked, chanting my question, and occasionally drinking some water. And it was cold, especially for a South Carolina boy. It was definitely below freezing. It was not a fun, cozy night. But I watched the full moon arise. It was gorgeous. And you could see forever across the clear sky, but every part of my body awaked, and my sleeping bag on those hard rocks was not much comfort. And when I awoke, the sun was long up. I had clearly fallen asleep before my vision got there. And I knew that I had not made it. I had almost made it through the entire night but not quite. And so the mental proliferation came in full force. All my failures roared in. The habitual, you're never good enough. You're always going to screw up. You always make a mess. You know those stories. I'm sure you have ones of your own. It was a tough day. And I prayed harder for a vision, a great vision that would unquestionably be successful. For once, I could avoid failure, but the eagle didn't come. And I kept walking and pacing through another day and night, almost. But again, I fell asleep and missed the dawn. I had failed. If the grandfathers had spoken, unlike Moses on Mount Sinai, I was asleep. And boy, was I hard on myself. The lack of self-compassion I wasn't even aware of because it was such a habitual thought pattern that I was running. Such a habitual, you can't do anything right, etc., I was failing Vision Quest 101, for certain. And I had several hours to wait. The 48 hours were ticking down before the guide would come and take me back to the camp. And I continued to pace around the circle, saying my question. 
And I began to hear a little bit of the arrogance in the question, but it was only because I was in such deep despair at that point. And a damned little big, annoying grasshopper kept flying across my circle and buzzing like a fly. It was not quite as loud as a fly, but it was really annoying, and it kept buzzing right around me. And I was really annoyed at this grasshopper. And at one point, I raised my right foot to step, and the grasshopper flew right across in front of me and landed right exactly where my foot was going to step. And I managed to catch myself and balance without falling down and without crushing this grasshopper. And it was a good-sized grasshopper. And I noticed that it was missing one of its big back leaper legs. It had all its little front legs, but it was missing one of those back legs. And for some reason, even now I can picture it in my mind's eye as I look back on it, for some reason it struck me that this grasshopper was just going about being a grasshopper in spite of the fact that it didn't have one of its legs. And here I was doing my usual whining number about not quite being good enough and not quite being successful, etc. And it just hit me hard in that moment. The connection that we have when we get outside our own story, our own mental proliferation beyond that internal self-absorption that we have with that question, how am I doing? That constant self-view. It cuts us off from whatever else is out there. We don't see it, we don't recognize it, we don't feel it, we don't think it. We're not connected with it. We walk along in our self-absorbed separateness, fear, delusion, grasping for the way we want it to be, as I clearly was, the great eagle soaring, the magnificent story and vision that I could tell and be very proud as opposed to the wonder of a one-legged grasshopper. (laughs) And it just popped me right open. I woke up in that moment and felt great gratitude to this grasshopper that I almost crushed with my hiking boot, my big mountain hiking boot that wasn't doing a very good job keeping my feet warm. And I found myself asking, in a weird kind of way, what in the world can I give to this grasshopper to express my gratitude? And then it struck me that the quality we experience naturally 
when we don't spin out into our own perceptions, into our own mental proliferations, when we're caught in the traps of our own making, in those moments we hold the silence in our minds and experience a deep abiding sense of peace. I'm not trapped. You're not trapped. I'm not trapped in creating Daniel, in becoming. I'm just there. We stop doing and we just abide in emptiness, in non-doing. Because we're not continuing to create, in my case, Daniel. That's all that happened in that little moment. I couldn't describe it then. I wasn't aware of the Buddha's teachings to describe it to myself then, let alone to you. But in looking back on it, it was just a tiny moment when I let go of my self-absorption and focused totally on another being and noticed that the only thing I could possibly give anybody, anything, is my heart, my compassion. We can't really connect or give others anything but that. And out of our self-absorption, we can't give, unless we're out of our self-absorption, we can't give that. Sharon Salzberg writes, Compassion is known in Buddhist teaching as the quivering of the heart in response to pain or suffering. So at that moment, my heart quivered in response to a grasshopper with one leg. My heart quivered. And finding the right relationship to pain, both ours and that of others, is very complex because pain can be a tremendously powerful teacher and an opening. And certainly, the beating up I was giving myself at that time, the self-absorbed running down of Daniel, the habitual running down of Daniel, was pretty painful. And it can also cause terrible anger and separation. But rather than lying, laying, I'm sorry, a veneer of idealism on top of reality, we want to see quite nakedly all the different things that we feel and want and do for what they actually are. The mistake that most of us make at one time or another is to try to superimpose something else on what we're feeling. At that moment, I was stripped I was exhausted from 48 hours with no food, nothing but water, and walking, and cold. And all of that veneer was stripped away. And I could touch with my heart for one of the first times that I recognized actually doing that. But we're caught so much in the shoulds the way we believe it should be. And in that moment, I crawl so far outside my self-creation and my self-absorption 
that I realized, I felt, I experienced that love for just a moment of connection, of beings in the universe, including poor, failure-driven Daniel. And that's what compassion is. And of course, the simplicity of that realization immediately gave my mind the opportunity to doubt it. And that's what happens when we have those moments of realization. We begin immediately to doubt them because they don't have that spectacular Mara isn't coming with the arrows and slings, you know, like the Buddha's, the story of the Buddha's awakening. And this was certainly just a taste for me of really connecting with love. And that opportunity lies for all of us as we let go and learn to let go of the mental proliferation that creates, in my case, Daniel. And I changed my question as I bowed to that grasshopper to where is my love and how can I give it to everyone? Where is my love? This is by Mary Oliver. Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It was what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world. It was what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world. That's what I managed to do in that moment, to lose myself. That's what it means not to create a self. In that moment, I stopped creating Daniel. I lost myself. To instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, the very drab, like one-legged grasshoppers the daily presentations, the opportunities we have to lose ourselves in the ordinary wonder of life. Oh, good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these, the untrimmable light of the world, the ocean's shine, the prayers that are made out of grass and the buzzing of a one-legged grasshopper. Thank you very much. We've got time for a couple of questions, if anyone has a question. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. 
when I first came to know the Buddha and, and his teachings, I was uh, trying to keep my eyes off myself instead of my making myself the center. But then I learned mindfulness, and I watched everything I did and valued, is this, is this okay? So I'm caught in that, and I want to be mindful. I don't know how to make my mindfulness less self-centered. Can you help me? All I can know is what I experience through my six sense doors, the Buddha taught. The eyes, the ears, the nose, the mouth, and our sense of touch. That's all we can know. When we make that totally about Daniel as if Daniel were doing it as if Daniel were generating all of that then I am falling into the trap of constructing an illusion because those sense doors are automatic When I open my eyes, I see. There's no thing that happens that has me see. There's no doing that has me hear or or smell or taste or touch. All of those sense experiences arise. So... Your question itself points to the own, its own solution. We make it up that everything we experience is about me. Because that's the way it seems. And that's the trap that our heart opening takes us out of. So practicing mindfulness, I begin to see how automatic everything is. And over time, that automatic arising has me begin to discern how I choose what I perceive around what I like, what I don't like and when I go completely numb. That collection becomes Daniel. And I believe it's true. And I live out of these are Daniel's thoughts, these are Daniel's preferences, these are Daniel's needs and desires and wants. And for me, that experience is pretty constant. It's one of the reasons I love to teach because in these moments, I get out of that space. And then it's about 
connecting and letting go of my absorption in Daniel and just being. That part for me is a journey and I'm in the beginning stages of it. So that's as far as I can take you, is as far as I've seen myself. But this story is an example of when, for just a moment, I was able to let it all go and felt that, experienced that, not felt, but experienced that connection beyond the sense of Daniel. And I bet you've had moments like that too. Yes. Yes, little tiny ones. Yes, just like my little tiny one. Yes. So good for you. Keep it up, all of you. Thank you. That's the bath. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, sir. I read that article uh, in the Times that you mentioned. Um, uh, uh, so one of the things that has always struck me about the Buddhist teachings are is that, um, as far as I can tell, my mind and everybody else's mind hasn't changed very much in the 2,500 years that he wrote. That's right when he spoke, when he yes. talked. Um, that um, description uh, in the Times is very unusual. Uh, I mean, there are compassionate people in the world today, but um, and we don't know much about, we don't know anything really about um, that boy who was found and his small group that he was with. Right. Um, uh, I'm, 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 I mean, what do we know about that? How um, was compassion more common in the past? Was it less common? Well, um, uh, I'm having trouble framing this question. I think you can tell that, but... Um, Maybe you uh, can speak to what I'm saying. I wonder that too. I wonder whether we've regressed as a species or whether we've progressed as a species. Uh, I think about the fact that there have been um, 14 I think 900 wars in recorded human history and in the 20th century alone we killed 200 million of ourselves the 21st century is actually a little better we're only killing a much smaller fraction than we did last century but there seems to me that as we become more of us and more crowded 
and have greater ability of violence and destruction, it appears to me that we're regressing. But I don't know that because at the same time, in my lifetime, I've seen yoga arise in the West. I've seen Buddhism flourish in the West. I've seen incredible people like the Dalai Lama and other great teachers who embody the enlightened wisdom and teachings of the Buddha, who don't just teach it, but embody it. And I've seen places like Spirit Rock and IMS flourish with so many of us hungry to come for the teachings. So I think we have a choice in the way we see what is arising now. And I'm working very hard with my mind to choose to see the fact that there are all of us gathered here tonight and virtually every night at IMS. There's something happening and all over this country and all over the world. There are people who are working to bring compassion into the world. And even in the midst of the craziness in Iraq and Syria right now, there are hundreds of people doing extraordinary things to relieve the suffering there. So, let's leave this place with that mindful wonder that Mary Oliver described of this moment and this moment where I choose to open my heart That's the contribution we can each make. And tomorrow, carry this with you and think about me and the one-legged grasshopper (laughs) and give some kindness, a little extra kindness wherever you can. That's that yearning that drives your question, I believe. And it's my yearning too. I join you in that yearning. Thank you for your question. And thank you all. Let's sit for a moment. Hmm. So take in the fact that you're here and that you came and that you didn't watch TV or veg out and with a book or go to sleep or that you're here and that you've allowed your heart to be touched and you've allowed yourself to connect with your community and you have created that community by your presence. Thank you all. Have a wonderful week. End.